If you just stuck with small cap stocks, uh, you would do fine over most time periods, three, five, 10 year periods. You would have better returns with higher volatility, better returns than large cap. On WealthTrack, an exclusive interview with small cap pioneer Chuck Royce. Funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Baird, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. There are very few active portfolio managers with more than half a century of experience, let alone one leading the same firm for 50 years and running the same fund, which has beaten its benchmark for just about any multi-year time period you look at. Today's guest is just such a rarity. He is small cap pioneer Chuck Royce, chairman of Royce Investment Partners, which he founded 50 years ago in 1973. Chuck is also a portfolio manager on four Royce mutual funds and three closed end funds. He is lead portfolio manager of the flagship Pennsylvania mutual fund, which he took over in 1972. Royce is credited with identifying small company stocks as a distinct area of investment before it was even recognized as an asset class with the creation of the Russell 2000 Index. Pennsylvania Mutual Fund has delivered 12% average annualized return since inception and has beaten the small cap universe over the years, including the last 10, 20, 30, and 40-year periods, as well as the more recent one, three, and five-year timeframes, where it has trounced its Morningstar small blend category as well. Morningstar gives it a bronze analyst rating for its experienced small cap experts, noting that some funds have marquee managers, others have teams, this one has both. Small cap stocks in general have generated subpar returns in the last five years and have underperformed large cap stocks by a wide margin over the last nine. But Royce says based on the historical data, small caps are due for a significant and lasting rebound. And he says history is the best guide to future performance. I asked him what the past is telling him about the future for small cap stocks. We've been in a very weak period for small caps. Uh, in the last five years, it's about three and a half percent, very low. Uh, the last 10 years, uh, the large cap have done a lot better. Um, these things do come in cycles, and I am convinced for a lot of reasons that the next cycle will be small cap. There's kind of a simple observation in these cycles that every cycle, you call it these 10-year cycles, which that's approximately what they are. And by the way, we're right at the 10th year now of a large cap cycle. So right. But what has been true in history is the next 10 years has always been different, i.e. a different asset class, i.e. small. I'm looking at the rebound in the mega cap stocks, you know, once again after being destroyed in 2022 with the excitement about AI, artificial intelligence. And so, you know, kind of here we go again, where the, the mega cap stocks are like 26% of the market of the S&P 500. Uh, so it, is this one of those situations, and you've seen it 
seen things like this many times uh, over your 60 years of investing. Is this one of those situations that could extend like the large cap outperformance, you know, beyond what it typically would be? So we're in the ninth, 10th year now. Uh, but going back in this concentration uh, aspect that you just mentioned, that's the most fascinating thing. That's only happened a couple of times. The last time was at the in the internet bubble, but mm -hmm. prior to that, it was in the mid '70s, of around '75, um, where there was something called the Nifty Fifty. Sure, you know Polaroid, IBM, Eastman Kodak, Xerox, Gen General Electric, Xerox. Right. Guess what? They're not here, most of them. And guess what? As that concentration moment faded, the money clearly went to the non-concentrated stocks, which would include small caps. Right. I mean, we have this weird phenomena right now where Apple itself is bigger than the entire small cap space. Wow. Isn't that Crazy. How about insane? Crazy. Yes. Uh, yep. So we are at super concentrated levels. Uh, I do believe that's going to pass. And I do believe, in a sense, those highly concentrated stocks will act as the ATM for, for small stocks. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of making fun here, but uh, I do think money will flow over to the average stock, which includes small cap stocks. It's happened before. It's going to happen again. You are a pioneer in the small cap space. You were one of the first to identify small company stocks uh, as a, a distinct asset class or an asset class that you were very interested in. Uh, how has it changed over the last 50 or 60 years? It, is it have the characteristics of small company stocks changed very much? Probably the single most important thing, it is now a defined asset class. Right. I mean, when I started, I was trying to make money, you know, from stocks of any type, but I was mm -hmm. drawn to smaller stocks because they seem to be, and they still are, inefficient. Mm -hmm. And they still have, they're less trafficked and they are less, there's less knowledge. And if you do the work, they can have a, you know, better outcome. But there was no such thing as a small cap universe. Russell invented this thing called small cap. And then they went back to 78 and said that's when the index was. Now, the index wasn't available in 78. So it was a little bit of a slight con job about looking back historically. But in truth, we were there the whole time. So the other thing that's interesting about, well, your evolution as, as an investor, I think you told me that when you started at uh, Penn Mutual uh, at, at, in 1972, uh, that you didn't start out as a value-oriented investor per se, or a value investor as it's called now. Uh, what happened that you became more value-oriented? I lost way too much money for shareholders in 73 and 74. And the, the learnings for me is that the risk element, the, 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 the risk in whatever I'm doing has to be much clearer and much more identified. And I have to be 
fearful of losing too much money. So the simple rule is, you know, don't lose the money. It became my mon mantra over time. But that took two or three years of losing too much money. How are you becoming risk averse in your portfolios, which you, you know, you're, you are known for your, uh, your risk adjusted returns and less volatility than the market, for instance. So how do you do that? We have no state secrets here. Mm -hmm. we, we are very interested in less leverage, the amount of debt. We are very cautious about leverage. Uh, we want high returns on capital, very simple number. We want that to be sustainable um, in most of our products. So it's a combination of focusing on the positive high returns and, and focusing on where companies could get in trouble, leverage. Mm -hmm. Leverage has taken down you know, more companies in the small cap space than probably anything. The other interesting aspect of the small cap, for instance, the Russell 2000, is that I saw uh, some figures that, that Royce had in your research that I think 43% of the Russell 2000 companies don't earn any money. That is true. That hasn't always been that high, but it is, it's, it's at a high right now. That, in, in it's a combination of things. Uh, in the small cap space, we have lots of companies who are just starting out and they use the public markets as a form of financing. So it, that kind of screws up some of the numbers. Right. Um, and, but it's not where we're looking. People over-associate the small cap space with that kind of risk and that kind of maybe opportunity. But in fact, there's just hundreds of excellent companies that have a long-term possibility. I mentioned in my introduction to you, Chuck, that the Pennsylvania Mutual Fund has uh, you know, beaten the market and the small cap universe uh, since inception in 1972. And it's also, if you just look about any multi-year period uh, since then as well, that uh, it's also been beating the market, which you know is really extraordinary. Uh, and again, with lower volatility, how do you explain that? We've stuck to the principles we've just talked about. The, there's just wonderful possibilities in the small cap space. So it is a, it is a forever, Area. I don't think it's something that people should come and go with. The oddly, if you just stuck with small, small cap stocks, uh, you would do fine over most time periods, three, five, 10 year periods. You would have better returns with higher volatility, better returns than large cap. So there's a continuity to it. Uh, now, we were going to do that anyway, but now if you look at history, there's a reason why people should have, you know, 10, 12 percent of their money in small caps all the time. Mm -hmm. So why so little? I mean, why not more? Because I did look at the figures and in fact, small caps ha have outperformed large caps uh, during many cycles. Obviously, we are not in one of those cycles now or have not been for the last 10 years. But then why not, you know, have a higher percentage in small caps? I'm assuming you personally probably do. The answer is 
volatility scares people away and they're interested in, you know, in these, in the fang world, they're interested in brands that they've gone familiar with, you right. know, Am Amazon, Google, et cetera. Uh, so, it, you know, there's an attraction to that, the land of the familiar, which, you know, which keeps these things going. Um, but I'm completely happy to stick to this space, you know, forever. <laughs> um, run us through how you decide to invest uh, in a company and give us an example of one of the companies in your portfolio and, and what, you know, drew you to it. In the particular portfolio that I've been active with, Penn Mutual, um, and something we called Premier, I love extremely long-term investments, things we could own potentially forever. So it starts with an idea that potentially we're buying the whole company. We're gonna close the door and let the years go by and own it for a long time. So we start with that attitude, which means we're gonna spend time on, okay, what could cause this company to prosper way, way out there. The word I like to use is identifying those thing, those features that are durable. Now in today's world, you can do, you do that by identifying them, you know, at the level of what you see in the company, but then it's important to go out and talk to customers, talk to ex-employees, talk to suppliers, et cetera. In other words, do the work in the ecosystem of the company, not just on the numbers. Of course, the numbers, the numbers are good today. That's what draw our attention to it. But what you're trying to think about is, will they be good tomorrow, five years from now, three years? So that focus, that sort of time arbitrage of looking way out, for me is the most interesting part hmm. of investing. Um, I'll give you an example of a company we like a lot to this day. Um, it's, it has a brand. It's something you would know and we all know. Morningstar, the mm -hmm. publisher of lots of commentary. It started with a competitor to Lipper yes. many, many years ago when Lipper was king of, the, of that land and Morningstar has completely you know, taken that over for good reason. They did a better job. Mm -hmm. um, but they've evolved into be a data bank for so many people in so many ways. They have moved that knowledge into even a more interesting area, asset management. And so you have, I believe, extremely durable features, which allows us to continue holding it for way out. Management, obviously, is really important in a company that you, uh, that you want to invest in, uh, but also the ownership of management of the shares of a company so are important as well, right? And, and why is that uh, such a key characteristic for you? Well, you want everything aligned. You, you mm -hmm. want the ownership 
to be aligned. Now, that could be from prior ownership. Maybe it's still in the founder category. Right. Uh, in the case of Morningstar, that is true. Uh, but in many companies, the ownership has shifted over time. So it's up to the board to make certain they have aligned interests. So we are, we are very carefully look at those forms of ownership. It could be direct ownership. It could be all sorts of compensation plans that have the same effect mm -hmm. as ownership. But the, you know, the proxy um, governance issues are critical to making good decisions. So yes, we absolutely discuss that. And that is a conversation before we undertake owning something for a long time. We want to make certain it's all fits in. So you're right. How do you differentiate between the owners who really are in there for the, the long haul, owning the shares in the company, and those who are basically incentivized to you know, get really good short-term earnings, earnings results, and then you know, when they leave in five years or whatever, yeah. they basically cash it, out. I mean, how, how do yeah, you tell it, the difference? That is tricky stuff, yeah. and you are 100% right. An issue that comes in our space is companies selling out to a private equity firm. That is, that happens to us routinely. Do you see any change in that phenomenon, uh, especially with interest rates going up and a lot of private equity firms, the companies they've invested in are very highly leveraged uh, now, which of course would be a no-no for you anyhow, so you probably wouldn't be invested in those companies. But are you seeing any change at all because of the, the rapid rise in interest rates that are affecting private equity financing? Well, I think you're right. The, the change, the rates that went up from zero to six in the fastest period of time ever, right. like a year. Mm -hmm. And so that, uh, honestly, I think it's a trend towards normalization, which will benefit the kinds of companies we invest in who are much more solid, and they have the financial flexibility to be the buyer. I seem to remember reading somewhere that, uh, that you did not own Silicon Valley Bank but I think that you owned the bank that took over Silicon Valley Bank after it went under. Am, am I right? Uh, you are right. A, we, we did. I mean, this is in the luck department, uh, Consuela. Okay, we own First Citizens, right. which was the bidder of Silicon Valley. And they, they were highly qualified. The reason we owned them is they were a great bank. Did we have any clue they would be advantaged in the world by virtue of Silicon Valley and a couple other banks, you know, going out. No, but wow, did they get a deal. The First Citizens took all the assets, all the relationships. Their earning power virtually doubled overnight. Wow. And the stock, the stock is up. So while all the bank stocks were going, and Penn Mutual had a, a chunk of it from five, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So all the other banks that were going down, every, all banks went down 25% approximately in that couple month period. First Citizen doubled. So, <laughs> so yes, that helped the short-term results. It was not a planned you know, outcome, but it was a wonderful outcome. What are some of your favorite areas? 
we have this wonderful world of called industrials, mm -hmm. which are basically B to B or you know service companies, et cetera. It's kind of a misnomer to call it industrial. Uh -huh. It's it's a huge area. We're always swimming in that pond. We look at virtually everything in the financial areas. We look at everything really. I look at everything but banks. Mm -hmm. I'm not looking for the perfect banks, but I will do it. But in general, outside of banks, in the financial area, I love other money managers. Artisan partners I mm -hmm. love. And we've That's been a increased. kind of a boutique, right? Artisan yeah, partners. But I, they're right. very differentiated. I like how they run their business, et cetera. And, you know, they too would benefit by a higher stock market in mm -hmm. small cap, et cetera. So I like I like things in our space. We've always liked boutique um, financial firms like Lazard. Mm -hmm. um, we've owned it for a long time. It pays out all of its earnings. They are they are extraordinary company historically with huge total returns, but you have to count the dividends. What's one of the best investments you, you've made recently um, or that you own currently? Well, a, a stock I like a lot is in the financial sector called Air Lease. They are, a, they lease airlines mm -hmm. uh, they, for the world. It's a global company, but they operate in such a differentiated way. They really are consultants Yes. Every single nation has airlines. Now, all of the airline manufacturing is basically here or in Europe. Uh, so the leasing or the financing of airlines is a critical business. And these guys are the smartest people in the world with extremely strong relationships that I believe will benefit them forever. So how do you get through the most challenging periods. And, you know, you mentioned the Nifty 50 and you mentioned you don't, didn't invest in the FANG stocks. But how do you get through those periods when shareholders are, you know, bailing on you, which has happened? It happens to every portfolio manager. Absolutely. Oh, that is the $64 question. We're in a period of low returns in small cap. I think we talked about the current returns of three and a half percent for five years. That, by the way, 100% of the times has delivered very strong next five-year returns, a hundred percent of the time. And that's where we are today. Current five-year returns, three and a half percent, under five percent. These statistics are pretty powerful when you can use the word a hundred percent of the time. If there's one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio that we should all own some of, is, is there one investment that you would recommend? Well, the stock I just mentioned, Airlease, would be my favorite stock. And Airlease is this fascinating, I would call it a merchant bank, because it, it goes and takes risks in the pipeline for how you order planes. It will get in line and be early in line. They will advantage themselves and their clients by taking some different posture. They're not a pure leasing. They operate in as a money manager. They actually do leasing for other 
other investment groups in the leasing world. So it is my favorite stock. Chuck Royce, thank you so much for joining us once again on Wealth Track. Congratulations on 50 years of Royce and 50 plus years of running Pennsylvania Mutual Fund. It's quite a track record. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Consuelo. Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is one of wealth track's enduring themes. Once you have figured out what your exposure to stocks should be as a percentage of your portfolio, the action point is stay invested in stocks. On past episodes of Wealth Track, we have shared compelling evidence that even missing a few of the best days of each decade since 1930 can lead to huge underperformance. It turns out the same is true with small caps. Royce looked at returns of the Russell 2000 during the first 12 months of recovery rallies from 1978 until now. Staying invested for the full 12 months of the market's recovery meant average returns of nearly 65%. Miss a month and the returns drop to 42%. Miss three months and your returns are halved to 31%. You get the drift. Going in and out of the market really doesn't work. Staying invested even in more volatile small cap stocks does. Next week, we explore tackling climate change through investing with portfolio manager Lucas White, who launched GMO's Climate Change Fund in 2017. Inspired by his boss, investment legend and passionate climate change mitigation advocate Jeremy Grantham. In this week's Extra Feature, Chuck Royce discusses the thrill of investing 60 years in, why he still loves it. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for watching. Have a lovely weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.